Great. So uh, over these next uh, three weeks, we're going to explore this theme, dress for battle. It's a strange uh, image, isn't it? But the church has got itself so involved over the last one and a half millennium in battle, in empire, and serving empire, that perhaps it's time that we pulled some of those strands out. It's an extraordinary thing still in this country, though not true in this church, that a priest, a bishop, is allowed to bless a battleship, but not a gay couple wanting to commit themselves to a lifelong faithful relationship. What an extraordinary situation we've got ourselves into. Dressed for battle. Even as we remember the cost of war, the devastating cost of war, the lives that we say were sacrificed, the lives that were given, they weren't given, they were taken. Young men, aged 16, in the First World War, as young as 16, forced into battle. That's what war is about. But endless civilian lives as well, taken, snatched. And beyond that, endless other lives destroyed through the loss of a partner, a son, a daughter, the loss of their whole family. War is absolutely devastating. Its impact is ongoing for generation after generation after generation. Not just because it destroys families, not just because it takes away loved ones, either accidentally or on purpose, but because it gets into the narrative of a state It gets into the narrative of a nation. It gets into the global narrative. Then in the end, violence is the answer. If violence was the answer, we wouldn't be where we are today. Never has violence worked. And of course, as I wrote on the front of the news sheet, but you didn't need me to tell you this, the First World War which claimed the lives, it's estimated, of 70 million people, 20 million uh, soldiers, uh, 20 million civilians, and another 35 million people who died because of suicide, depression, despair, loss of life around them, poverty, but following on. But within 20 years, almost to the day actually, of the peace treaty being signed for the war, the great war, the war that would end all wars, the world was at war again. Of course, today we celebrate Armistice Day. It took another year to sign the peace treaty that would end the First World War, which was called the Treaty of Versailles. That wasn't signed until uh, 1919. But even the delegates to that uh, event uh, from Germany and from France and Britain, those were the people in in the room, uh, the Treaty of Versailles, signed in Versailles. Even our delegation, read all about it if you care, said this peace deal is no peace deal. It will lead again to war. And it did, of course. 
tragically, the Second World War, which took the whole thing to a new level. Abuse and rape, slaughter of innocent people, bombs dropped on cities, everyone obliterated, whoever they were. And the century since, just littered with war. Devastation that still goes on in Iraq and in Syria. And countless, endless families robbed of everything, every security and every hope. So it's strange, isn't it, that even when we choose to celebrate peace, we do so in a military way. And we take for granted that military is actually the answer. There's a lot uh, to think about. Jesus said this, put your sword back in its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Was he right? Or was he just kind of gloriously naive? Love your enemies, Jesus said. Perhaps the three words that are the best known soundbite on the planet and the least practiced by anyone. Love your enemies. Do good to those who hate you. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who abuse you. Muhammad said this, part of the Quran. Whoever slays a person, it is as if he had slain uh, mankind entirely. And whosoever gives life to one soul, it shall be as though he had given life to mankind altogether. And also in the Quran, compete with each other for doing good. Extraordinary then how these two religions have become such a cause of anguish and war in our world. It's a quote from Martin Luther King from the pages of the Bible as he studied the Bible. Love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. Love is the only thing that can turn an enemy into a friend. Well, Oasis runs a load of schools around the country, as you've already been told, if you didn't know already, and so many of our schools, along with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of others, were involved in those uh, Inspire events uh, uh, at the end of uh, last week. And uh, uh, lots of ongoing peace projects are coming out of that, not just services and events in cathedrals and churches and mosques and things. We worked for three years to make, uh, bring this about, but ongoingly out of it, peace projects, big peace projects, poem, uh, poem writing projects. Uh, I, uh, one town that I know, there's an old, um, uh, old roundabout that's overgrown and, uh, and the young people of the town are turn, uh, city are turning into, this is in Bradford, they're turning it into a peace roundabout. And they, uh, white young people and Asian people, Christian young people, Muslim young people have been given this and they're going to, uh, they're going to uh, keep uh, this project going. Endless other projects for young and for old people um, in the city of Bradford, which is, uh, uh, like many cities, divided because of uh, Inspire. Over the last two uh, years, the Christian leaders and the Muslim leaders have come together. I've been there. They've asked me to uh, be part of their coming together. Um, and out of their coming together, all sorts of projects grow up across 
uh, that city. That's just one city that springs to mind because they were just texting me this morning. So all of these uh, uh, things have happened. But because we run schools, we know this. We've learnt this. It's knowledge inside Oasis, but you might work in a school in some other context. You know this. When I went to school, I was telling my kids, they seem to think that this is like impossible. I must have been hanging around with dinosaurs. But when I went to school in Croydon, they still used to give people public canings. Well, honestly, they did. You know, uh, uh, I avoided getting a public caning at least, but um, some of my friends got them. So the whole assembly, this uh, auditorium, as you know, acts as the assembly hall for our school. And it's as though the, uh, the, um, the whole school was gathered and our head teacher would stand on the stage. There was a stage. And then the poor kid that was going to be caned would be brought onto the stage and whipped in front of everyone. And that was the assembly. And we thought that was education. No one stopped to ask the questions about what's going on in this kid's life. Why do they act? the way they act. Perhaps they act aggressively, but will violence stop violence? Will violence help in any way? I was speaking to someone uh, just a little bit earlier, you're probably here, who, um, yes, I know you are somewhere, though I can't see you, who worked in Feltham. Where are you gone? There you are. Who worked as a chaplain in in Feltham. And uh, you know, I know, we all know, that, do you know, I I know this from... um, Chris Grayling, who was the government minister in charge of the Ministry uh, for Justice, when he told me this, I had lunch with him, he told me it costs five times as much to send a young person to Feltham as it does to Eton. Five times as much a year. But but, but um, But the rate of being re-involved in crime uh, following a trip to Feltham, a stay in Feltham, is almost 90% within 18 months. And I pointed out to Chris Grayling, it was only almost 90% because he made the cut-off point 18 months. If he stretched it out to two years, it would be 100%. Not only does it cost a fortune, but it doesn't work. Why doesn't any of this stuff work? I'm not talking about Feltham. I'm talking about a violent response to violence. It just does not work. A few years ago, I used to, um, uh, probably in the la- well, in fact, in the last millennium, I say a few years ago, but back at the in-, in the 90s, I worked for ITV television for a bit. I worked for Oasis, of course, but in my spare time, I worked for ITV television. They used to get me to present a Sunday morning political program, and it so happened that let- running up to Christmas, it was a bit later in the year than this, it must have been the start of um, December, and it was just after the... Um, the twin, ta- uh, no, it, it, no, it was, was in this millennium then, because it was just after the Twin Towers had been felled. And um, I sat there with the American ambassador, the new American ambassador at that time, and my job was to interview him. And, uh, and uh, you know, the producer talks in your ear, you know, that little kind of thing there. And uh, you're trying to hold a sensible conversation with someone while somebody else is just rabbiting on at you about what you're not saying, what you should say, which camera you're shifting to, how many seconds there are to go to the next ad break, all of that. By the way, when you think people who are on the telly sitting on a couch are kind of paid a fortune for... Um, which I never was actually, but they paid a fortune, sadly, but they paid a fortune for just having a chat, which anyone could do. You should try doing it for a couple of seconds. It's like 
fries your brain inside your head. Anyway, so there I am. I'm listening to all this stuff, and this uh, floor ma- uh, the, the uh, producer, rather, uh, the floor manager's talking at you as well about camera angles, but you're trying to hold a sensible conversation, and the producer's saying to me, ask him about peace. Ask him about peace. And the, the producer says to me, he goes to church, he goes to church. Ask him about peace. So I say to the American ambassador, I say, now, uh, 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 sir, now, ambassador, um, we're coming up to Christmas, and, of course, I I know that you're a a Christian, a deeply committed Christian, and we know that Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Uh, What? Because the producer's saying, ask him a serious question. So I say, so what impact do you believe the fact that Jesus is the Prince of Peace should have on the foreign policy of America, a Christian country. There was a silence from the ambassador. The uh, producer said into my ear, yes! (laughs) But I just... (laughs) So I repeated the question. America's a Christian country. Jesus is the Prince of Peace. What impact do you think that statement should have on the foreign policy of your great nation? There was a long silence. And then he said, none. Love your enemies is a personal private thing. It doesn't impact nation states and their foreign policy. Some of you know a bit about theology and you'll know that, that he got that line from Augustine of Hippo, in the fifth, that it was Augustine's line in the 5th century. That's aside from the point. When Jesus said, love your enemy, was that just naive stupidity or can it work? In our schools, we've learned this. Schools have learned this around the, the country and slowly around the world. That some kids, they're aggressive. And they're aggressive because their backstory, because the story they live in, because the narrative they inhabit, because of the crap that happens in their life. I remember when Cornelia and I first opened a hostel, which was the first ever project that was part of Oasis. We still run it down in Croydon. And I remember, well, in that hostel, we, we create space, family, support for young women. And I remember, this is back in the late 80s, and I remember uh, these young women, 17, 18, 19-year-olds, first arriving. And, of course, we kitted out the place, beautiful um, dining room and um, uh, artwork on the walls. 16 young women can live there at any one time. And they arrived, and I expected them to arrive with smiles on their faces. I expected them to greet us in a happy kind of middle-class way. I expected them to admire the art on the walls and to love eating breakfast together every morning. Instead, they never said please or thank you. Instead, they didn't talk to one another and they fell out with one another. And instead, they stole all the artwork off the walls and the television we bought for them in the dining room and sold them to their friends. And then complained to me that they had nothing to watch. 
And through that experience, I learned a huge thing. I learned that. They weren't in the same place as I was, even though I'm broken down myself. And I learned that what they needed was love. And I learned that what they needed was to come to respect themselves and honour themselves. And I learned that their backstory was pushing them to act in a particular kind of way, which I could bring through my love rather than my reaction against their behaviour, which I could bring, which would change their lives. We know, don't we, that the brain is just another muscle. When I say just another muscle, it's not just another muscle. It's a very highly complex muscle or series of muscles. And we know that the decisions we make every day in the environment we live in and the, the environment we breathe in, the air we breathe in, as it were, is what slowly forms our brain. We know that someone who lives in an environment of hostility, who's never loved, who's always on the outside, who's run into the ground, who's talked down, who's beaten up, we know that their brain develops differently to somebody who's in healthy relationships and is loved and is read to and is held and is embraced. And that, of course, is exactly why Ben and Candice uh, brought... Kobe here this morning, for it's their task and our task to work with Kobe so that as he grows, his brain develops in a healthy uh, manner. It's called his prefrontal cortex, actually, for those of you who don't know, but I know that many of you do know. And, our, 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 uh, and the way our brain works is all of our emotions are exploding inside us. They're a kind of nuclear reactor. They're called the limbic system, actually. But they're exploding inside us. But we develop a management system in our brain which teaches us how to reflect and to respond. It's called a therapeutic approach to education, and it's the only thing that works. And it's why this school here has the best, of course, you know, results that there are in London at GCSE. The very best. Because actually our whole education here, here is based on love and not aggression. And that is the way that Jesus calls us to. So when Jesus says love your enemies, it's not some first century sage who doesn't really get that you've got to get military sometimes. It's the wisest teacher that ever stood on the face of planet earth telling us that love wins. Love wins. We need a love revolution. A revolution of love. And we need that at the highest levels in global government. Some of you will know that I worked as a special advisor to the UN for almost a decade. And I'm telling you, I can tell you stories privately, but I'm telling you for all I'm worth that I saw some of the most immature behavior I'd ever seen at some of the highest tables in the world. People who cannot love, who cannot reach out. It's one thing to say you're sorry in life, I've learned. It's another thing to say I was wrong. I'm sorry. I was wrong. Forgive me. Try practicing those next two bits. Not just I'm sorry, but I was wrong. Forgive me. That's what love is as we go forward. We need a revolution 
uh, I don't know if you know this guy was. His name was, that's a, the best photograph we got of him. He lived just about 100 years after Jesus. His name was Ptolemy. He was a fantastic uh, mathematician, and he worked out how the universe worked because he looked up at the st- stars. And this is his map of our solar system. It's pretty confusing, isn't it? They're all planets. The Earth's in the middle, and, all, and the sun is a bit further out. If we go back to there, it's the third planet out after the... Uh, uh, well, after... Uh, after the moon and Mercury and Venus, it's the fourth planet out, the sun, in, in his way of seeing the world, just before Mars, because he looked up at the sky and it's just the way it seemed to him. But the planets seem to move in a strange kind of way because he put the Earth in the center and they move forwards and they move backwards sometimes and that is his plan of the universe. And do you know what? It was pretty good at the time and it stood all the way through until the 1400s. Everyone believed this. The church believed it, government believed it, everyone believed that that's what the, u- the universe looked like. It was just our solar system but they thought it was the whole uh, universe until this guy came acro- along called Nicholas Copernicus. And uh, he lived in the 1400s. He was a contemporary, basically, with Martin Luther, who started the Reformation and John Calvin and all that. And he looked up at the sky and he looked at this map back here and he thought, it's ridiculous. It's all so complicated. And it, oh, it's mad. And uh, he said, it's different, you know. The earth isn't at the center, the sun's at the center. And if you put the sun at the center of the, our solar system, not the earth, everything sorts out. And you get rid of all that twirling and whirling, and it's just kind of simple like that. He didn't know uh, all the planets we know of now, but that was his system. And you know when he came up with that system? He was condemned by Martin Luther, condemned by John Calvin, condemned by the Roman Catholic Church, and uh, his writings were burnt as were the books of uh, Galileo, who lived a whole generation after him. And he was house-imprisoned as well by the church. They didn't get it. But we need a revolution. They were right, of course, and they were bringing about a revolution. And we need a revolution now, a revolution in love. I'm only going to talk for a couple of more minutes, but I'd like to show you this. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in love. And there's that... The word for anger is af. This is Hebrew, of course, because it said Psalm, Psalm 103, verse 8. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, af, abounding in love. Here is the Hebrew word af, as it is in Hebrew, and there is its transliteration uh, for you there. Now, the word af, which in all Bibles everywhere is translated anger, slow to anger, strange thing about the word af, It doesn't mean anger at all. Do you know what it actually means? It means nose. It literally means nose. Trust me. It's in the Old Testament about 270 times. It means nose. But on 200 of the times it's used, well, 70 times it's used, it's translated as nose. 200 times it's used, it's translated as anger. The verse should say, if it's literal... The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to nose, abounding in steadfast love. Now, why do I tell you that random piece of information when I'm talking about peace? Here's why. Because we just prayed for peace. We just all stood up and prayed for peace. Why am I showing you this, though? Hebrew isn't a conceptual language. It only spe- I'm picking on one word. It can only deal with concrete examples of anything. So why does it slay slow to nose and why do all the Bible translators translate it as slow to anger? 
Because when you're angry, your nostrils flare. When you're angry, your nostrils flare up. And in Hebrew, there is no abstract word for anger. There is only a word for nose. And it goes on. Hebrew thinkers could only think in concrete terms. They didn't do abstract. That's just one tiny example. I could bore you for hours with words that are concrete, but we've turned into concepts. So that's the point. We pray for peace. What does the word pray mean once you realize that Hebrews couldn't think of concepts? It's something you had to do. The Hebrew word that we translate pray means do, work at, give your life to, bury yourself in, live out. When we say we pray for peace, we don't mean bow our heads for a couple of minutes and say a nice amen on the end. By the way, amen is another Hebrew word, amen, and amen meant to nurse a child. It, it literally, so an amen was a nurse of a child because a nurse of a child supported that child, carried that child. She was known as an amen, a midwife or a nurse of a child supporting carrying. And that became our word amen. So when on the end we say, Lord, we pray for peace, amen, what it means is, Lord, we give our life for this. We live differently. We throw ourselves at other people with love and compassion. We will not hold a grudge. We will let go of it. We will say, not just I'm sorry, but I'm wrong. Forgive me. I'll do it differently. We will reach down in, out to our pockets and get out our resources and give them to other people. We will give up a belief that violence can in any way beget anything other than yet another round of violence. We will give up our belief that pushing our views on somebody and making them compliant for a while is the same thing as love. And we will say amen to that, which means I will nurse this. I will carry it. I will support it. I will live for it. It will change the way that I am every single day. I'd like to close by reading you some words that were written um, by Malala. You know, all know Malala, the youngest ever winner of the Nobel Peace Prize. In 2014, uh, when she was 16, she won this prize and she stood up on the stage there in Switzerland and she talked about the fact that Martin Luther King had been there before and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa I don't have time to read you a whole speech, but she simply says, all these were people who worked for peace, worked for it. That's what to pray means, to work for something. They all worked for peace. They did not believe in violence, not one of them, and we honour them with Nobel Peace Prizes, and then we still go another way, and we say it's all too complicated, you know, you've got to build your fighters. Well, everybody says that, and it hasn't worked yet. This is Malala. Why is it that countries which we call strong are so powerful in creating ways to work war but are so weak in bringing peace? Why is it that giving guns is so easy but giving books is so hard? Why is it 
that making tanks is so easy, but building schools is so hard. We live in a modern age and we believe that nothing is impossible. We've reached the moon 45 years ago and maybe we'll soon land on Mars. Then, in this 21st century, we must be able to give every child quality education. Dear sisters and brothers, this was a group of world leaders, we must work, not wait. The Hebrew word for pray. Not just the politicians and world leaders, we all need to contribute. Me, you, we. It's our duty. Let us become the first generation to decide to be the last. Let us become the first generation that decides to be the last that sees empty classrooms, empty seats because of violence, lost childhoods, and wasted potential. Let us be, let it be the last time that a girl or a boy spends their childhood in a factory or a prison. Let it be the last time that a girl is forced into an early marriage. Let it be the last time that a child loses their life or their family in a war. Let this be the last time that we see a child out of school or in school bullied. Let this end with us. Let's begin this ending together today, right here, right now. Let's begin this ending now, together. I'd like you to take that inspire tag that you've got and the pen that you've got and I'd like you to stop and reflect instead of hurry into something. But then I'd like you, if you choose, to write on that tag what you intend to bring about peace. A prayer is something you nurse and support. A prayer is something you work at. And as Malala says, it's not just world leaders, it's us. Because peace starts in communities, between neighbours. The nasty, noisy neighbour you've got next door. How do you build peace with them? Or the guy at work that you really don't get on with? Or your family member that really you've never had a conversation with in the last 30 years? I don't know, but I know this that only a hand reached out in peace builds peace. Somehow, we need to commit to walk this way. We're going to play some music, and as the music's played, think, reflect, and then write something. And then as you've written things, we'd like you uh, to bring them, this uh, string along here, and uh, you can peg... Uh, you can pin, you can tie, Fleming says, you, got that. you can tie your pledge along there. That walk and that tying becoming your way of nursing into reality this thing that you're praying for. Let's do that now.